42, verses 36 to 41. Acts 2 began with the events of Pentecost, and then Peter gave the explanation of Pentecost. It fulfilled prophecy, and it describes Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit this morning. We'll see the effects of Pentecost. So Acts 2, we'll begin at verse 36. That comes right at the end of Peter's sermon, as it were. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we want to pray as David did in Psalm 139 that You would search our hearts. And if there is any wayward thoughts, acts, deeds in our lives that You would point it out. Father, may we listen attentively to Your Word knowing that it is Your Word for us. May we not be concerned about how someone else may hear it, but may we be attentive to Your Word. And may we not be listeners only, but may we be doers of the Word, knowing that it is in doing Your Word, in obeying Your Word, that we are ultimately blessed. And it's Your blessing that we long for and desire. And we ask that You would bring it even this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Maybe seated. On any given Sunday, as the people of God gather together in a congregation, there are four groups of people present, usually. And each one of us will find himself in one of these four categories. Uh, first of all, we have Christians who know that they are Christians present in church. Uh, They know that they have put their faith in Christ. They know that they have repented of their sins. They know that their life has been transformed. And they are Christians and they are confident that they are Christians. The second group present on any given Sunday are non-Christians who know that they are non-Christians. They are coming to church for a number of reasons. Maybe they're coming with their spouse. Maybe they're coming with their parents. Maybe they're Uh, curious as to Christianity and what the Bible teaches. There's a number of reasons why they come to church, but they know that they are not Christians. They know that they have not put their faith in Christ. They have questions. And they know they have not crossed that line from non-Christian to Christian. The third group present on any given Sunday are Christians who aren't sure that they're Christians. They have put their faith in Christ. They have repented of their sins. Uh, but they have doubts about whether or not they're really Christians. 
Uh, there are many reasons for this. Um, often, it's because of sin that they're not sure if they're really Christians. They think, well, if I was a real Christian, uh, I wouldn't do that. That's not always the case. Um, other things can contribute to this lack of assurance. Uh, but on any given Sunday, there are real Christians in the body of Christ who aren't real sure about their standing. And then there's the fourth group, and that is non-Christians who think that they are Christians. And this is actually quite a large group of people. And there's many reasons for why non-Christians think that they are Christians. Uh, many people think that they're Christians because they believe in God. Um, I talked to a gentleman just this last week and he said that he believed in God. He didn't have any qualms about that. But he didn't think you needed to go to church. Um, but he probably, if I had asked him, are you a Christian? May have said, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I'm, I'm not an atheist after all. Um, others think that they're Christians because I go to church. That's what Christians do. So yes, I'm, I'm a Christian because I go to church. And of course, that's very important. And most Christians do go to church. In Acts 2.42 and following, we see that right after these baby Christians are baptized, the first thing they do is devote themselves to the church, to the body of Christ. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. I believe it was Keith Green who said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Um, other people think that they are Christians because I was baptized. And of course, that's very important as well. We see that in our text in verse 38. Peter says, repent and be baptized and you will be forgiven. So that's very important. Uh, but baptism alone does not say there will be many baptized people in hell. Because although they received upon their forehead or were immersed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, they did not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then there are those who think they are Christians because they believe in Jesus. Now, this is a tough one because Christians do believe in Jesus Christ. That is at the core of being a Christian. But you can have intellectual belief in Jesus and not have a saving belief in Jesus. Um, for example, you can believe everything that we recite in the creeds about Jesus Christ and yet not really be a Christian. And I know this from personal experience because I was raised in a church. I was baptized in a church. And I had this, what I would call, mere intellectual belief in Jesus. If you ask me, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I would say, yes, I believe He's the Son of God. Uh, if you had asked me, do you believe in the virgin birth? I would say, yes, I believe in the virgin birth. If you would have asked me, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead three days after He was crucified on the cross? I would say, yes, I believe that. Do you believe in the ascension of Christ? Yes, I believe in the ascension of Christ. But, if you would have asked me, what difference does your belief or your faith in Jesus make in your everyday life, I would have given you the deer in the headlights look. I, what difference does that make in my everyday life? And I would have been bewildered as to what you were talking about. And if I would have been honest at the time, I would have said zero. 
it actually makes zero difference in how I live my everyday life. Yes, I believe all these facts about Jesus, but God is way up there. He's transcendent. He's way up there in heaven somewhere. And I live my life on earth and never shall the two meet. That belief in Jesus Christ that doesn't affect daily life is not saving belief. And saving belief is very important. And as I said earlier, this fourth group is very large. There are many people who think they are Christians, but they are not Christians at all. And we know it because of how they live. We know it because of what they believe. Many of you have seen the statistics. People call themselves Christians, but they believe Jesus sinned just like anybody else. Or they believe that they're Christians, but everybody's going to heaven. It's not really necessary to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. When you hear these things, you wonder, well, how can you really be a Christian and believe all those things or live a certain way? And the answer is, you can't. In Matthew 7, we see that Jesus was very concerned about this large group of people. Honey, can you hand me that water down there? This is what Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty-one to thirty, or excuse me, twenty-three, and they are among the most frightening verses in all of Scripture, and I really mean that. Notice what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, isn't that significant? Last week we mentioned the saving confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. And these people don't just say it once, they say it twice, which indicates familiarity or intimacy. So they think they have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord. But Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in Your name, and do many mighty works in Your name? Lord, Lord, did we not teach Sunday school? Lord, Lord, did we not teach at the church? Lord, Lord, did we not preach sermons? And He will declare it to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. And notice what He said in verse 22. On that day, many, not a few, not some, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not know you? And he will say, no, actually, you're not a real Christian. Now, this is the question I want to ask you this morning. Why are so many confused? Why, why is this category so large? Why do so many people assume that they're Christians, describe themselves as Christians when actually they are not Christians? Well, for starters, we must be very confused about what it means to be a Christian. Would you not agree with that? Um, you might recall back when Jimmy Carter became president, uh, he made the term born-again Christian popular. Born-again Christian, which is a manifest redundancy. Because if you are born again, then you are a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you are born again by definition. So, for a person to describe themselves as a born-again Christian is redundant. But I would also say that in part it's a 
necessary redundancy. And why is that? Because so many people call themselves Christians when they're not. So, in attempt to clarify what we meant, we might say to someone who describes themselves as a Christian, and we weren't so sure, we would say, are you a born-again Christian? Because that's a very specific term. And they might ask, what do you mean by that? I can still remember many years ago watching the Super Bowl, and a gentleman asked me, what does the term born-again mean? And I said, well, do you have a Bible? And I got a Bible, and I opened up to, to John 3, and I said, well, here's where the term comes from. Jesus told Nicodemus, truly a true life say to you, unless a man is born again, he will not even see the kingdom of God. And being born again describes having not just physical life, but having spiritual life, having the Holy Spirit bring about new life so that you become a Christian. And of course, people would use this term born again Christian in an effort to clarify what it really means to be a Christian. Now, let's go a little deeper and ask, um, why do we not have a clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian? Why is that so fuzzy for us? Why is that so hazy? Why is that not clear in our minds? And I want to give two answers this morning. The first answer is that our gospel isn't as precise and biblical as it could be or as it should be. Our gospel, our explanation of the gospel is not as clear as it should be. Last summer, I took a class with R.C. Sproul and R.C. Sproul Jr. And he began the class by asking two questions. And the second question is, what is the gospel? And he went right around the room. And I can remember, he started right over here and I was second in line. I was like, ooh, I better give a good answer. But he went right around the room and he asked each student, there were 12 of us if I remember, he asked each student, what is the gospel? And when he finished, he said, oh, these answers are very good. These answers are the best um, that I've ever heard. And I thought, well, thank you very much. You've never had me in class before. Uh, just kidding. I, I did not think that. Uh, but actually, he said, and his wife, Vesta, was, was right there. And he said, uh, you would be surprised by the abysmal answers that I have heard over the years. And his wife said the same thing. Now, this is what I want you to keep in mind. And he said, this is a doctoral class of pastors. A doctoral class of pastors. Pastors working on their doctorates are unclear about the gospel. You can never be too clear about the gospel. A number of weeks ago, Michelle and I were working out at the health club and a gentleman was talking about church. And Michelle went up to him and said, oh, it's so great to hear someone talking about church at the health club. We never, we never hear that. And he was talking to us about his church and the uh, universalist church that he used to attend and some of these other churches that he used to attend. And after a while, we realized he doesn't have a clue. And I remember saying to Michelle, you can never be too clear about the gospel. He was involved in a number of churches. He was concerned about young people coming to church. Yet it was very clear that he didn't have a clue as to what the gospel was. 
And that's just stuck with me. We cannot be too clear on the Gospel. Well, last week we talked about Peter's quote-unquote Gospel presentation. His evangelistic message. And we mentioned that he basically had four points. Uh, Can anybody reiterate for us what those four points were? Anybody remember? Was anybody taking notes? Anybody have their notes with them? Lydia nodded yes. Anybody else? Lydia, do you have them? You want to tell us what those four points were? Nice and loud. The life and ministry of Jesus. That's where Peter began. And then he talked about the death of Christ. The death of Christ. Atoning for our sin, even though Peter didn't get into that. And then the third point was the resurrection of Christ. And then the fourth point was the ascension of Christ. The reign of Jesus Christ at the right hand which makes Him Lord and Christ. And I mentioned often in our gospel presentation, we stop with the resurrection and we don't continue on with the climax, Peter's climax, which is he is Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You need to bow down before him. And again, let me remind you that the simplest confession of faith is Jesus Christ is Lord. And if people are going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord and bow their knee before this Lord, then we need to preach Jesus Christ. Christ is Lord right now. So you need to bow down before Him. And also, let me remind you that Peter is giving this message against the backdrop of judgment. Remember Acts 2.21? And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Saved from what? Well, saved precisely from the judgment that he described in verses 19 and 20. And ultimately, saved from the ultimate judgment to come when we stand before God. The author of Hebrews says, It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We will be saved from the judgment. Uh, have any of you looked at jewelry recently? Specifically diamonds. It's okay. You can admit it. <laughs> um, I know Renee has because she works at a jewelry store. Uh, Renee, when someone wants to look at a diamond for perhaps a wedding ring or something else, you place that diamond on what? Really? Wow. I, I'm out of touch. Uh, I thought it was a black cloth. Oh, okay, okay. I, I need to know more about diamonds. You can teach me later. Uh, messed up my whole illustration here now. <laughs> Something black. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. play along. Uh, well, many years ago when I got married and was looking for a diamond for my wife's ring, uh, they put it on a dark black cloth so that you could see the brilliant light of the diamond. Um, and that's how it is with the light of the Gospel. Um, you want to display it against the dark backdrop of judgment. We all know that we need to be saved, but let's not assume that people know what they need to be saved from. We need to tell them. You need to be saved from the judgment of God. And if you want a very simple explanation of the Gospel, maybe keep these three points in mind. People need to be saved 
from the wrath of God. They need to be saved by the grace of God, which is found in the cross of Christ, and remind them that they are saved for the glory of God. They now live for God. Um, so that's very simple point that people need to have clearly in mind. You need salvation from God's wrath and your only hope is God's grace which is found in the cross and then you are saved for God's glory so that you can serve Him with the rest of your lives. And this means you need to remind people that they're sinners. And this is hard. Because we just want to give them the good news. Nobody wants to talk about the bad news. At some point, you have to say, you sinned against God. You're guilty. You need forgiveness. Jesus Christ is your only hope. You need to make it very clear that they need salvation. And you'll recall in verse 36 that Peter reminded the Jews of the first century that they crucified Jesus Christ. He pointed out one sin because this was one sin where he could make it very clear that they needed salvation. You crucified Jesus. You're in trouble. You need salvation. And we need to tell people that they're sinners because the goal of our Gospel presentation is conviction. People must see their need for Jesus Christ. We can't just quickly run ahead and say, turn to Jesus. We need to tell them why they need to turn to Jesus. Because they're in trouble. Because they are guilty sinners. We need to be very clear about that. Peter is very clear. And as a result, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom they crucified, we're told that they were cut to the heart. Can you picture that? Very grab. Cut. Ah! What have I done? I am partly responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what did the people say? What shall we do? Do you see the despair? Do you see how they're made, made aware of their... What shall we do? Oh no, we're guilty. We're sinners. What shall we do? And let's keep in mind that this conviction is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm describing this as the effect of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and we see Him at work between the lines. We really do. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about conviction. This is what Jesus said in John 16, 7 and following. He tells His disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, talking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Very simply, the Holy Spirit will convict people of their unbelief in Jesus. He will convict people of their lack of righteousness and He will convict them that they are on Satan's side. He has already been judged and they will be judged. 
if they do not turn to Jesus Christ. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. And any of you, if you can look back on a time when you realized you were a terrible sinner and you were broken over that, perhaps crying because of your sin, that was the Holy Spirit saying you're a sinner. And that's very important. We have to have that conviction before we move on. The Holy Spirit must work. And we can't bring about that conviction. We can only preach the message, tell people about their sin, tell people about Jesus Christ. But as we're doing that, this is what I would ask you to do. Watch and see if they're not responding. Watch and see if the Holy Spirit is not working. I do this in evangelism. I do this in counseling. If I'm giving people counsel, I watch and see. Is God working? Is God opening their eyes so that they can see what I'm talking about? And that is very important. Because if they don't see it, if they're not listening, you're wasting your time. So it's very important. Watch. Keep your eyes open. Watch and see. If God is not bringing about conviction, listen to what they're saying. If they say to you, oh no, what should I do? (laughs) That's a good indication that the Spirit of God is working, that He's bringing about conviction. So without this conviction, people aren't ready to respond to the Gospel. With this conviction, they're ready to respond. So, why don't people have a clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian? First of all, because our Gospel isn't clear. And then my second point is, my second answer is, because we're not asking or demanding people to repent. We are not telling people that they need to repent. Notice, after a clear presentation of the Gospel, the people are convicted of their sin. They say, what shall we do? And in one word, Peter basically says, repent. You need to repent. That's what you need to do. And let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were listening to a message on television or the radio and you heard the preacher, the pastor, the minister say, you need to repent. God requires repentance. When was the last time you heard that? Has it been a while? It had been a while for me. Until this morning on the way to church, I turned on the radio and the, the minister said, I was like, oh, there you go. <laughs> but until this morning, it had been quite a while. Now, why is that? Can we just be honest? It's not comfortable. Who, who wants to say to a friend, a neighbor, a son, a daughter, you know what? You're living in sin. You need to repent. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm putting together the message this week and I'm thinking, wow, it's a holiday weekend. Everyone's in a, in a, in a good spirit. They're enjoying parties. And I'm going to talk about repentance. Oh, Lord, the timing is not very good here, right? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, didn't, I was like, yes, I get to call people to repentance this morning. I can't wait. That, that's uncomfortable. But we have to do it. Because that's how lives are changed. And if people do not repent, they're not really Christians and their lives will not be changed. Now, you might be thinking, let me clarify at this point, you might be thinking, well, wait a second, I thought we are saved by faith alone. And and Wayne, you're one of these Reformed pastors and you always talk about the five solas of the Reformation, including sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone in Jesus Christ is all that's necessary for salvation. 
So how does repentance tie into that? Glad you asked. This is how repentance ties into faith. If you really have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will repent of your sin. That's how it works. Repentance basically is the fruit of faith. And it shows that your faith in Jesus Christ is not just mere intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe all these facts about Jesus. But it shows that your faith is not just mere intellectual assent, but it's really saving faith because it leads to repentance. And I think of Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, some of you may recall. And he meets with Jesus. And sorry, what? I'll, I'll just turn to it. It's found in Luke 19. You can turn there if you like. Luke 19. And I'll just read two verses. Verses 8 and 9. And Zacchaeus stood. Very formal. He, he stands up and he says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of the goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and most likely he had, I restore it fourfold. That's repentance. That shows that his faith in Jesus Christ was real. And we know it based on what he said. We know it based on his behavior. And we know it based on what Jesus said. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. This man is truly saved. Just look at his life of repentance. That shows that he really does have faith in me. In a Sunday school class one time, and, and you'll find this example in the devotional I provided for you, but in a Sunday school class one time, the teacher said, what is repentance? And a little boy raised his hand and he said, it's being sorry for our sins. And then a little girl raised her hand and she said, it's being sorry enough to quit. Uh, that's a pretty good definition of repentance. And basically, it's the difference between remorse and repentance. See, remorse is when you're sorry for your sins. Like when kids get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, right? You can't have any of those cookies unless you ask permission first. They don't ask permission. They grab a cookie, you know. Mom yells from the other room, What are you doing? Because she hears the clinking of the glass lid. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mom. Which interpreted means, I'm sorry you caught me and I didn't get away with it. That's not repentance. That's remorse. Repentance is, I'm sorry, Mom. And they never do it again without asking. And next time they say, Mom, can I have a cookie? That's repentance. Uh, Judas, we're told, uh, was sorry for his sin. He even owned up to it. He even admitted that he had betrayed innocent blood. But he never repented. He was overcome by remorse. He was overcome by guilt, but he never repented. Peter, on the other hand, was overcome by guilt and remorse, but he repented. And this is my point, and it's very important. And Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 5.9 remorsefulness or repent or excuse me remorsefulness or sorrow for sin may or may not lead to repentance so remorsefulness brokenness over sin is important but it's the first step then we need to go on and we need to change our lives 
Theologian Anthony Hokema defines repentance this way, the conscious turning away from sin and turning toward God in a complete change of living. That's repentance. And in Acts 26.20, Paul was talking to King Herod and he said, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So if you really have repented of your sin, it will show itself in how you live. You will live a different life. Not a perfect life, but you will live a different life. That's genuine repentance that results from faith in Jesus Christ. And the fruit of repentance for the believers in Acts 2 was that of baptism. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And remember why this is so important in this context. These people mocked Christ. They had Him crucified, which means they rejected Him as the Messiah. They rejected Him as their Savior. They rejected Him as Lord. And now Peter says, you need to repent. You need to change your life. You need to change your mind. Maybe you've heard this before. Uh, The Greek word repentance is metanoia. And it literally means change of mind. And perhaps you've heard theologians say repentance is a change of mind. That's true. I've heard some say, well, you can have a change of mind without a change of life. And I completely reject that. Because if you really have changed your mind about Jesus Christ, you will change your life. So, yes, literally it means a change of mind. But that change of mind will result in a change of life. And for these believers, it would mean a change about who they think Jesus is, a clinging to Him for salvation, and they would show that they really are clinging to Jesus by being baptized in His name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit as a way of declaring I was wrong for participating in His crucifixion. I was wrong for mocking Him and reject Him. And now I embrace Him with my whole life. And here's a sign I want the whole world to know that I'm embracing Jesus Christ. I am going to be baptized in His name. So we see very clearly the fruits of repentance. 41 says, So those who received His Word were baptized. And there were added that day about three souls. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, Have you repented of your sin? And notice how I said past tense, repented. Was there ever a point in your life where you realized that you were a sinner, you put your faith in Christ, and you repented of how you were living? You asked God for forgiveness, and by His grace, you changed how you were living. Have you ever done it? That is the beginning of Christianity. There has to be a change in life. And again, it's not that you go from being a sinner to being a perfect person, but there's a change in your life, an obvious change in your life. Let me also ask this question. Is your life characterized by repentance? Because as believers, we are to be repenting. It is not just something we do once in a lifetime, but it's something we do on a regular basis. 
And let me also ask very pointedly this morning, is there anything in your life this morning that God is putting His finger on and He's saying, you need to repent. You know that what you're involved in is wrong. You know this behavior is wrong and it needs to stop. You need to repent. Is there anything in your life that God is pointing the finger on? I believe the Holy Spirit is more than capable of doing this. We mentioned in our opening prayer what David said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Test me and know my heart. See if there is any anxious way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Holy Spirit is more than capable of saying, that's wrong. Stop doing that. And I would say to you this morning, repent. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Repentance precedes revival. We've been talking a lot about revival. Repentance precedes revival. If you want God to work in your life, and I can tell you once again from personal experience, from repenting this time and repenting that time and repenting over here, I can tell you that when I have, when I say, okay, Lord, I, I surrender, I, I repent, I'll do whatever you're calling me to do, I'll make restitution, I'll, I'll confess it to brothers and sisters, I'll do whatever you're calling me to do, that's when my life changes as a Christian. I go, oh, there's a jump. If you're not as close to God as you need to, maybe repentance needs to take place. And when you do that, God will come near to you and God will work in your life. Repentance is so important. We cannot be stiff-arming God. We cannot say, Lord, you're asking too much. Nope, that's, that's too much. Hands off that area. Don't talk to me about that relationship. Don't talk to me about what I'm doing over here. If Jesus Christ really is Lord of your life, then He's Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. So repentance is so important. And I pray that you are open to the Spirit of God. Because following repentance comes all the great promises. Notice what Peter says. Repent repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you repent, you'll be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You want the Holy Spirit working mightily in your life? And he, this is what he would be saying to the first century believers. You see what's taking place? You see this mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God. If you repent, if you're baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. What you're seeing will be a part of your life. He will come upon you in power. Do you want that? Repent and the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power. And you will experience that in your Christian life. But it all begins with repentance. We will just own up to that. If we will just say, yes, Lord, take the steps He's calling us to. Then we're forgiven. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Then we experience His power in our lives. And then we start to say once again, ah, the Christian like, yes, I'm back. Anybody ever felt like that? Ah, oh, the joy of the Lord is back. The fun of Christianity is back. The thrill is back. Because I've repented. I've turned back to God once again. That's that's the Christian life. Um, just up and down. I, I hope your, your Christian life is just like this. You know, up, up, up. Mine, mine is, and I have to be honest, mine's not like that. But we are to repent and we are to live a life of repentance and God responds when we do every time with blessing. It's that simple. In theory. We all know that repentance can be hard 
and practice. But by God's grace, we can do it. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we even thank You for this hard word of repent. It's a hard word to say to unbelievers. And it's also a hard word to hear whether we're unbelievers or believers. Uh, When Nathan the prophet came to David after his sin and basically said, repent, it was not easy to hear. But he responded positively and his life was restored. I think of Jonah going to Nineveh and telling them that God's judgment was coming upon them in 40 days and they repented from the least to the greatest and as a result of that, you were merciful and you withheld judgment because they repented. Basically, you brought about a revival in Nineveh again because of repentance. Father, may we be known for our repentance. May we have soft and tender hearts before You. May we never stiff-arm the Holy Spirit. May we always be open to the leading of the Spirit. Father, lead us in holiness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.